Hey, what's going on? Jason Bay here. You can call me J-Bank. You're listening to Blissful Prospecting, and I'm super excited that you're here taking the time to listen to it. This podcast is for sales reps and sales teams that love landing big meetings with prospects, but hate it when they go to make a cold call and they're not quite sure what the best intro or opener to use is, and they get stuck when a prospect finally picks up the phone. So if that's ever happened to you, it's happened to me quite a few times, <laughs> you're in the right place. super excited for our conversation today because we're talking to Nick Sigelski, who is a co-host at 30 Minutes to President's Club. It's one of my favorite sales podcasts, and we're going to be talking about all about cold calling. So one of the things that he does really well that I wanted to get into is he's very routine oriented and just extremely disciplined. And we talked for over an hour <laughs> about cold calling, and I wanted to get really sort of granular as much as possible around how he preps for his cold call sessions. Like literally, what does he do? How does he prepare for them? What, are, what does he do the first you know, five minutes before he's about to make those calls? How does he open his calls? What does he do? How does he handle objections? I mean, we got into a lot of stuff and how he plans his week and all kinds of good stuff. So one of the things that he's really big on, like I said, is habits. And it's something that with prospecting, there's a few just core two or three things that you know, asking for permission, for example, at the top of a cold call, if, if that's something that you make a habit and do every time you, you start to get a compound effect on that, where you get more comfortable, people are more receptive to talking to you. And it's one of the you know, keystone habits for being successful at cold calling. And one of the toughest part about habits is actually forming new habits. It's really tough, actually. And a tool that I rely on for this is called Wingman. And what Wingman does that's very different from other tools in its category is it'll actually give you live feedback. Like let's say during a discovery call or a demo call, if you're doing it, it'll give you live feedback during the call and prompt you when you're doing things like talking too much, saying certain words or phrases that you're trying not to say. It'll prompt you when the prospect says something and provide talking points around competitors or other objections. Uh, it's pretty freaking cool <laughs> to say the least. So I started using it a couple months ago and it's really helped me up my sales game. And if you're looking for ways to really get coaching without your manager having to be there right with you to provide the coaching and get it real time, I'd recommend checking it out. And you can do that at blissfulprospecting.com slash wingman. Let's get to the interview with Nick. So I've really been looking forward to this interview, dude. And, and one of the things that I noticed in doing research about you is you were a head coach or are you still actually head coach of a wrestling team at USC? So did you wrestle like in middle school, high school? Did you wrestle growing up? Yeah, I did. So I yeah. started wrestling in seventh grade and okay. because I had a little brother and I spent a lot of time beating the shit out of him. <laughs> and my parents were like, all right, we got to do something about this. And I also loved watching WWE as a kid. And so okay. I was like, I'm going to be a professional wrestler. I loved reading about these guys' life stories, their biographies. And so I started wrestling in seventh grade and it was absolutely horrible my first year, but I was kind of like a, a socially awkward middle schooler. And it was the first time that I felt like I had a group. And then I got to connect it back to sales. The thing that I love about wrestling is the harder you work, the more fruit the sport yields. And so yeah. I was just sort of pouring myself into the, mm -hmm. the sport and I got a lot better. And by virtue of that, I ended up kind of having a group. And so 
I mean, I wrestled all through middle school, high school. I did all right. I made it to the New York State semifinals. Oh, cool. And I lost to a guy that I beat, which was kind of disappointing because I could have been the first New York State finalist from my high school, which wasn't the case. But And then I wrestled in college, and I love the sport, man. I don't know if you can see my ears. I got cauliflower ears still, <laughs> and I still get on the mat. Not presently, because there's no wrestling going on in the middle of a pandemic, but up until mid-March, when everything shut down, I was getting on the wrestling mat two or three times a week because it keeps me sharp mentally. Like, yeah. I don't care what you work, especially in sales, you get punched in the face all day, every day. Yeah. And the same thing happens in wrestling. And so I was just talking with one of the kids that I coached before we got on this. And I was like, man, the reason that I do that is it keeps me sharp. I've seen a lot of my peers as they get they get into their 30s, like they really start to decline physically. And it's kind of crazy because you're still pretty young in your 30s. <laughs> there's nothing better than the sport of wrestling. It keeps me so sharp. I'm going to be wrestling until I'm 60. I'm never getting off the mat. No, I love it. The reason why I asked is so I play basketball and, you know, basketball players and wrestlers are always had that, you know, sort oh, of stuff. A rivalry there. Yeah. You guys actually had fans come to your, your, uh, <laughs> But you learned a skill that could actually help you in life. Like for me, throwing a you know ball in a hoop, yeah, I don't know. But the reason I wanted to ask you about that is that, especially prospecting, I feel there's like this daily grind aspect of it. I just put up a post today on LinkedIn, essentially saying that you don't need to like prospecting. Like you don't need to like it. If the goal is to try to like it, I think that's just a recipe for disaster you probably, correct me if I'm wrong, didn't like all the freaking conditioning and weight cutting you had to do with wrestling. It's just kind of a part of the sport that you accept, right? And no different than dieting, exercise for personal reasons, whatever it might be. Do you see a connection there with sports and like in terms of how it helped you with sales in that area? Like I want to dig into the mindset part of it because I feel like this is like really overlooked where people are mostly, it's just, hey, just suck it up pick up the phone, make the calls. It's not that big of a deal. And there isn't really anything constructive that comes from that. I mean, welcome to life 101. You don't have to like every waking mm -hmm. moment of the things that you do on this planet. Wrestling, the first thing that I got told on the first day of practice in high school was discipline is doing what you don't want to do when you don't want to do it. Yeah. And there's also all sorts of quotes about discipline equals freedom, whatever you want to call it. But welcome to life. Sometimes you have to do things that aren't particularly pleasant in the moment, but they're actually very, very good for you. And so, yeah, I mean, I don't enjoy prospect. I mean, I like the science of it and the psychology of it. And it's really cool. Yeah. The first time I learned using an upfront contract or a permission-based opener, it changed my cold calling. And I, I've had a lot of fun with it. And now that I've done it enough, I'm a little bit looser when I'm making a cold call, but still not fun to pick up the phone and getting told by a receptionist, never call here again, you stink. And, okay, well now I can feel good yeah. about myself. But I think the way that I've gotten around that is by, you have to be consistent with tough things. Yeah. So we, we can talk about conditioning. We can talk about prospecting because when you're consistent with them, that means you stay really connected to the feedback loop. Yeah. So what I mean by that is, okay, let's use wrestling here. And then I'll talk about the sales analogy. But if I'm conditioning every single day to get in really, really good shape for wrestling, I'm going to see more success on the wrestling mat and I'm going to win more. And I, my brain makes the connection between winning and the hard work of conditioning. So if I want to keep winning, I'm going to keep doing the conditioning. And if I want to win more, I'm going to condition more. Same idea with prospecting. I closed a deal two days ago that was a direct result of a cold call that I made six months ago. And if I make that connection before I do the hard thing that, oh, making these cold calls is not just about booking meetings, it's actually going to yield 
money in my pocket from a closed one deal, it's easier to keep doing it. And so it's really tough, especially in the beginning, especially for new salespeople, because they don't connect closed one revenue with cold call they're making today, particularly in the enterprise yeah. space where it'll take me a year and a half to close a deal sometimes, but you have to keep drilling that into your head because then when you do and you get to the point where there is a feedback loop, like you have to start with nothing. You just have to kind of trust that doing the hard thing will yield the positive result. And then when you have the positive results, like, oh, I kind of like this. I kind of like making a lot of money and hitting my quota. I'm going to keep doing the hard thing. But you kind of have to artificially jumpstart yourself. I talk to a lot of very new salespeople who are just out of school and they're like, well, Nick, what's your best piece of advice as a new salesperson? And, and recently what I've been telling folks is start with your foot on the gas as hard as you possibly can, because you can yep. always ease off later, but do the work really, really hard up front because then you start to get the positive side of things. And you're like, okay, I can keep doing this. This is really nice. I'm making a lot more money than I thought I would. But yeah, I mean, welcome to Life 101. You have to do hard things. I tell them this to myself every time I have to get up early or do a tough workout or do anything hard. If it were easy, everyone would do it. Yeah. And by virtue of it not being easy, it actually means it's a good thing. So you have to retrain your brain to move towards hard and difficult things. Our brains are inherently, they want to take the path of least resistance. But if you can intentionally and consciously make the decision to do the harder thing more often than not, I think the yield is really, really good. Yeah. Well, you bring up this kind of interesting point too. David Goggins talks about, like he calls it, you know, creating calluses. Oh, I met him at a wrestling camp. Oh, 2009, dude. I met him at a wrestling camp. That guy is a maniac and I love him. Yeah, he's insane. He, he talks about like callousing your mind. <laughs> and I think it's a really interesting kind of thing. Because again, if he's working out as an analogy, it's, hey, when you're getting after it, you know, every day, that doesn't seem like that big of a deal when that's the habit. And it's like, okay. And then someone's like, well, I'm having trouble making a habit out of doing something two or three times a week. Yeah. You're like, well, I'm doing it every day, dude. You yeah. know, and it's like a different perspective that you're taking on it because like the feedback loop thing is really interesting that you talk about. You're getting feedback quicker. And I think that I'm a little fuzzy on what the exact science is around this, but dude, people are pretty Pavlovian. You know what I mean? There's so much going on under the hood with habits. Like that is the beauty of being a person is that like most of what you do throughout the day, you don't have to think about what you're doing. Yeah. And what I want to dig into you in a second is like kind of your routine and your habits and stuff. But I always wonder like, how can you make picking up the phone and cold calling? How can you make that more like brushing your teeth? I don't know anyone that likes brushing their teeth, but doesn't everyone for the most part brush their teeth? Doesn't everyone take a shower? You're usually at the end of the day. I mean, don't they do the laundry? I mean, you're already doing a lot of stuff that you probably don't like doing, but you don't think about it because you've just been doing it for so long. Like, how do you approach your day? If we could get like pretty in the weeds, how do you plan your day, man? Like, how do you get your mind in the right place in the morning? Like, do you have a routine? Like, what, what does, like, how do you lay out your day? And like, what does the week look like? And how do you work in this cold calling time into your routine, man? One of the big things that I do is I put artificial constraints around things okay. that I have to do. So, okay, let's talk about cold calling for a moment. There's a philosophy related to cold calling or anything hard called eat the frog. And the idea yep. of eat the frog is that if something on your to-do list says you have to eat a frog today, it's best just to get it out of the way first thing in the morning. Because if you don't, you're going to look at it on your desk all day and it's going to get grosser yeah. and grosser and slimier and slimier. And you're going to have that anxiety in the back of your head crap, I got to do this thing. And so yeah. just get it out of the way in the morning. And so 
I kind of adopted this in my very first SDR job where, yeah, we had a call metric that I had to hit. And I remember I would get into the office and we started at like an obscene hour. We started at 7 a.m. Pacific. I don't know why, but like I was up at 5.30 to ride my bike to the office. That's a whole nother story. But I'd get in, (laughs) you know, I'd just ridden my bike for 45 minutes. (laughs) It was terrible. It was a really sad existence. I have nightmares about that job sometimes. But anyways, I'd get into the office and I'd have to use the restroom. I'd have to go pee because I just biked to work, right? And I would not allow myself to go to the bathroom until I had made 10 cold calls. And so I'd be there at the desk going like this, but it forced me to just like, just start and get into it. It's like, if you're going for a run, just getting out the door is the hardest. And so I'd have all my coworkers who'd be like, oh, let me check my email first. Or, you know what, I'm going to do a little bit of research to warm my brain up. And I forced myself to jump in with 10 calls right away. And then right away, I was like, you know, 10 calls into my call metric. I'm like, "I, I actually, this isn't so bad. And then I'd let myself go to the bathroom and maybe have a cup of coffee. But like the point is I'm putting these artificial yeah. rules or like challenges around myself. So I do that a lot. I do it with my time blocking, particularly. The idea of time blocking is I was filling out an RFP for our customer today, potential customer today. And I looked at it and I said, okay, I can probably going to take me about between an hour and two hours to get this thing done. I said, well, what if I could do it in 60 minutes? And so I set a timer on my magic device called my phone. And I said, I've got 60 minutes to blast through this thing. And I, you know, I, I didn't end up hitting the 60 minute limit, but there's this idea, it's called Parkinson's law. It's that the tasks you have in front of you will expand or shrink based on the amount of time available to you. And so yeah. what you do is I actually artificially put those into play to force myself to cram what I need to in into the amount that I need to do doesn't mean you do sloppy work, but what you do is if you set those artificial boundaries, you actually will get the work to shrink into what you need to do. And you'll, you'll leverage yourself better. You'll use your team better. You'll start to identify opportunities to get things done more efficiently. So this RFP, for example, I had to use one of my internal solutions engineers to answer some questions. And I made the error, which I realized after the fact, and this kind of goes before the call, you and I were talking about self-coaching. I have a document that I use anytime I screw something up royally or identify a better way to do something, I write on that document. So what I did, I made the mistake of copying and pasting all 40 questions that I needed to ask one of my um, solutions engineers, and I sent them in an email. And so that person replied in the email, and then I copied and pasted all of their responses into this Excel doc. And, And that wasted an hour. I should have cut myself out as the middleman and just sent the person the dog and said, Hey, you need to answer Rose seven. Like, mm-hmm. and I didn't realize it until about halfway through I was filling this thing out. And so I put it in this, I have a one note document that I keep and I call it learnings, not things Nick screwed up because now next time, because I wrote it down and consciously focused on it. Like, okay. Next time I know what I'm going to do. So that'll save me some time. So I'm kind of always looking for opportunities to run my day better. And there's sort of two sides to it. There's planning your attack, which I actually think is the very challenging part of being a very high performer. What are you going to spend your time doing? And then there's attacking your plan, which simply comes down to motivation. And if you're having trouble with motivation, there's a billion and a half books that that you can go read or talks you could watch. David Goggins is a great guy to talk about that, but I don't know. I slug a cup of coffee and I know that if I do X activities, I'm going to get where I want to be financially and career-wise. And so then I attack the plan, but you can't do both at the same time. I guess this is, I think a lot of people struggle with, I'm going down a rabbit hole here with you, Jason, but I think a lot of people struggle with motivation because 
they don't necessarily know if the actions that they are doing are taking them to where they want to be. And so, of course, you're going to feel conflicted. The idea of cognitive dissonance where your brain freaks out if it's doing something that doesn't align with where you want to be. And so this goes back to setting the board or planning your attack. Where you want to be, you must spend some time being strategic and planning on what you're going to do so that once you know what you need to do, you can just shut your eyes and freaking kick. Otherwise, you're trying to make a decision about what do I do versus, oh, I need to work hard here versus, wait, am I doing the right thing? And it doesn't work. You got to separate the two. Let's talk about this planning part. Yeah. And this, like these artificial constraints that you create. So where do you block off planning in your week? Oh, good one. So I do it on two levels. I do it on a sort of like a macro level, the week level, and then I do it on a micro level, which is the daily level. So I've been writing in a journal ever since I was that awkward middle schooler. I, you know, it's a composition notebook and I try to fill out at least one page every single night. And so I can go back to sixth grade oh, and I wow. can read about the, the crush I had on this girl, Jessica. And I, I kind of cringe every time I read about it. And that's actually her name. So she's listening. Yeah. And I'm, I'm embarrassed. But did she know that you had a crush on her? No, I think she she does because I wrote her a note and slipped it in her locker. And then the next week she was at a different locker. So there's my life. I'm kind of making that up. Anyways, what I do when I write in my journal is I, I do a one page recap of the day. What went well, what didn't go well. If I could have a do over, what would I do differently? All the stuff that's mm. top of mind. And that's really helpful for self-reflection, but it actually helps me the most from a mental health perspective because it helps me process the day. Yeah. If I can't sleep, it's usually because I'm like processing the day and thinking about what did I screw up the day before or what went well, what didn't. Mm. And then I'm also thinking about the next day ahead, like, oh, shoot, you know, how am I going to fit it all in? So I try to tackle both of those things with pen to paper. So I write about the day that just happened, what worked, what didn't, what would I do differently if I could have a do over? And then I write three things that I'm grateful for, because especially when the COVID stuff started happening, I found myself getting very, very negative. And so I had to intentionally Mm. focus my mind on positive things. Page two is a look ahead at the next day. So I literally will I'll pull out my phone and I'll look at the calendar that I have set for the next day. And I'll usually just dot down, okay, I have a meeting here. Here's one of the things I want to think about for that. And I'll map out the day. And frequently what will happen is I'll say, oh, I don't have enough time to get my workout in. So I might need to get up an hour earlier. Or I'll identify an efficiency where, oh, actually, if I stack, if I flip this meeting or move it here, like one thing I try to do is I stack like meetings. So if I have a bunch of handover calls to our operations or customer success team, I want to have them back to back to back because I want to be in that headspace versus if I don't have any time for cold calling, maybe I do need to get up an hour earlier and cold call. So, anyways, I look at the next day ahead and I make a plan related to that. So that is on a, a micro level on the daily side of things. On the weekly level, on Sunday nights before I go to sleep, because that's usually, I think people call it the Sunday scaries. It's when you have that anxiety about the week ahead because you hopefully yeah. took some of Sunday off to relax. But I'm like, okay, what's coming ahead this week? What do I need to expect? And I'll map out the whole week, sort of the same mm-hmm. exercise. I'll look at what's on my calendar. I'll look at the, the big things that I really want to accomplish And then I would say, I don't formalize this. Like, I think there's some people who are like, I'm going to do a life strategy thing every single, every quarter. Well, I don't really do that because I don't know. I'm a pretty emotionally driven person sometimes and my emotion and my energy are very interconnected. And so there'll be times it'll be a Tuesday night and I end up just writing for an hour about strategy and bigger things related to my life. And I'm also pretty lucky. I have Armand Farouk, who's the guy I host this podcast I run with. He was also my college wrestling training partner. So you want to go all the way back to the beginning. I mean, he and I have 
calls together two or three times a week. And it's because we run this podcast together. He and I were wrestling teammates. We also own a bunch of real estate together. And so we end up having to talk about operational stuff a lot. But we also have helped coach each other sort of through our careers and through yeah. where we've ended up in life. And so I use him as a sounding board a lot. And so I think it's important to have somebody like that in your life who you can be like, am I totally off base with the direction that I'm going? Like, should I take this job or that job? So there's a lot of reflection there from somebody who I found has a very similar, although not identical, they're going to have some big differences, mindset about where we want to end up career-wise. Okay. So I want to just kind of stop and kind of summarize some of the stuff that I'm taking so far. Go for it. And there's some stuff I think that we could dig into. So like from a planning standpoint, you know, everyone wants to know productivity hacks. Like you do the number one thing I recommend block off five to 10 minutes at the end of every day to just look at the day that happened and then just plan the next day and spend 15 to 20 minutes at the end of the week or at the beginning of the week planning, you know, the next week. Like if you do those things, like I don't think people allow their resourcefulness to kick in. Like human beings are incredibly resourceful. If you just block off the time to do something, dude, it's not rocket science, how to block and tackle something, you know? So you're planning out. I think that's great. You mentioned, Hey, I stack similar tasks together. I think accountability partner, that's something I've been talking a lot about lately. I think it's super important. You create artificial constraints for yourself. Yep. Is there anything else from a high level when you think about how you're going to plan your week? Is there anything that you do in terms of particular times that you might schedule a cold calling block versus client meetings versus sending out emails? Is there any other way that you kind of look at your week in terms of like, if you had to create the ideal week where you might place certain things throughout the day, certain types of buckets, I guess, of activities? Yes, I try to match my output and energy levels to the type of task that I'm doing. And so for me, the morning is when I want to be doing things that I like, Mm -hmm. the output is coming from me. So mornings, and I would call this between seven and 12, I'm spending time on things I have to do. That's when I'm cold calling. That's when I finished that RFP that I had to do. That's when I'm filming a video for a customer. Afternoons is when I attempt to stack my customer meetings because the afternoons are when I'm lower energy naturally. And so I start to lose focus as well. And maybe it's because I further and further away from the cold brew I start the morning with. But the afternoons is when my energy starts to go down a little bit. But I mean, it's the afternoon right now. And the thing that is the antidote to that is for, is being in front of another person. And so I want the mornings to be when I'm executing on things And once I'm in front of somebody, I'm not low energy because I'm just talking to you, right? We're just having a conversation. And that's the same thing I'm doing with a customer. And so I'm not showing up like, oh, dead for the customer meeting. But I don't need to worry about motivating myself in that moment Mm -hmm. versus the morning. I'm very, very high motivation. I'm ready to rock afternoons. I'm like, ah, kind of lower energy. But I'm in front of somebody. I'm in front of a customer. I'm on a podcast. Great. Let me stack it then. Go back to my buddy Armand. He's the complete opposite. He likes to flip it. And so- he and I are working on stuff together and he's messaging me about stuff I have to do in the afternoon. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, please stop. Yeah. Like, you know, this is when I'm low energy, man. I'm the same way, dude. And so I want to like mental stuff. Like for me, it's, I want to do that while I'm drinking my coffee. Yeah. First two hours of the day. <laughs> oh, I mean, that's the best part of my day when I drink the coffee and then yeah, me too, dude. Just, uh, I'm waiting for the next day to happen so I can drink another one. So you take your customer meetings in the afternoons, which is a great suggestion. It's something I suggest a lot. How do you deal with, because sometimes what I hear is people are like, well, what if someone wants to meet with me in the morning? What do I do? What if a prospect wants to meet in the morning? Well, what if my customer wants to meet first thing in the morning? I have to take, like, they feel like they have to take the meeting at that time. 
Do you say no to people? And if so, like, how do you say no when they want to schedule something around a time that you really don't want to, because that's the time you're making cold calls. And it's like, I need this prospecting camera, whatever other thing. How do you say no? Well, the, the easy answer is, oh, well, it depends. If someone I've been hunting down for months or like it's yeah. a really, really critical meeting and the only time that works for them is 8 a.m., well, I mean, I'm going to take the meeting. That's part of being a salesperson is you need to be flexible yeah. sometimes. The inverse of that, though, is there's nothing wrong with saying, okay, I, I think I can make that work, but is there a chance that you could do 2.30? Yeah. I mean, half the time, like, actually, yeah, that does work for me too. Most people, when you ask them a time to meet, they just pull something out of their calendar Yeah. versus if you make the suggestion and like if you politely ask, I think most people are flexible and willing to work with you. And so I think some of this comes down to like the perception we have as salespeople about where we stand relative to the customer. Yep. And I think oftentimes we take this very subservient and junior perspective because you're speaking with a COO of a large company. Well, mm-hmm. there's nothing wrong with asking. And actually the sooner you can recognize that you can break those barriers down, the easier your life gets. So there's nothing wrong with saying, okay, well, I'm actually wondering if you could do three. Or would it be a bad idea to, to schedule something for the afternoon? I have a little more, bit more bandwidth then. Ask. Worst case scenario, they say, no, that doesn't work. And then, okay, maybe then you got to be flexible. So yeah. that's my answer. Yeah, I think you hit the hammer on the nail there with the mentality. Yeah, the mindset always drives the action. And yeah, if your mindset going in is, is that I'm not equal to this person, yeah. then yeah, you're going to cater to their every whim. You know. So let's get into more cold calling related stuff. And first, kind of tactically, mm-hmm. How long do you block off for a cold calling block? And is there anything you do to prepare for a power hour or however else you decide to block it off? Is there anything that goes into the preparation of that? Yeah. So a couple things. I see a lot of salespeople falter in terms of what they're deciding to do during a power hour or a call block or whatever you want to call it. Mm. You can't be doing research during a call block. You should have all of that done beforehand. You shouldn't be, oh, shoot, I don't have this person's phone number. Let me look in Zoom info. Everything should be ready. In an hour, the only thing that I am doing is calling people. And if somebody says, yeah, I'm interested, you know, can you send me a calendar invite for, for three o'clock? Let's meet. Great. I'm going to do that. And I'm going to write on this magic device called an eight and a half 11 by 11 piece of paper. I'm going to say, <laughs> you know, Jason Bay meeting three o'clock tomorrow. And then I'll send them an invite after that call block. My goal is I don't want to be going into my email and looking at my inbox because, okay, marketing just asked me what what lunch do I want when we go to this networking event next week, which isn't happening right now. But like, I'm not replying, oh, I want salmon. I'm only doing one thing. Like we've all heard multitasking doesn't work, but it's the truth. And so I want to be just focused on making those cold calls. So what I do is... I don't use a tool at my current company like an outreach or sales loft. And so I'm calling right out of Salesforce. And what I will do is, again, this is the artificial sort of constraints thing. If I've got an hour set aside, which is typically how much I have enough bandwidth to be able to do in a day, while also sustaining where I personally want my pipeline to be, I'll set an hour and my goal will be, can I make 30 calls in this hour? Which is a fairly ambitious goal based on the tech stack that I have available to me and that the space yeah, I'm calling it definitely might is, be different dude. for different folks, right? <laughs> And I don't usually hit that number, to be clear. What I do then is I open 30 tabs of every single person that I want to call. And when I make the call and finish it, I can hit the X on that tab. And I start to see the tabs get smaller and smaller and smaller. And that's a really good feeling to be like, oh, good. I only have this many cold calls. Now this many, now this many. And so it's sort of like this artificial game that I create for myself. So do your do the research ahead, get the list ready. You're doing nothing but cold calling. So that's putting the lines around it. So you're not getting sucked into these distractions. The other thing is 
I think I see people, I don't remember who I got this from, but there's the idea of personalizing versus personalizing. And I'm really falling more into the personalizing camp because I've seen enough prospecting emails where the first line is, you know, hey, Nick, saw your USC Trojan, fight on. And then the rest of the email is irrelevant to my persona and me. And like, yes, you might get an open personalizing, but I don't necessarily think that's going to convert from a business relevance perspective. I would rather have a much more relevant to that person's role and job responsibility prospecting message. And so like, I'm not cold calling at someone and saying, Hey man, I saw you went to Indiana state. Like we should, you know, it's focused on the jobs that that person has to do. So what I will also try to do from that tab perspective is I've opened up 30 tabs and I'm going to group all the CIOs in one cluster. So I'm calling 10 CIOs in a row and then I'm calling 10 CFOs in a row. And so it's the same persona grouped because I'm getting in the same headspace. Same idea as grouping those meetings. But I think what I want to do is I don't think I'm a super smart person. I just want to lump things together so my brain gets to where it needs to be. And I'm not thinking about, okay, what's the value prop I'm saying to this person? I'm calling only CIOs today. I'm only calling CIOs. And now, okay, now I'm on my CFO block, brain switch, calling those people. It's a different value prop. So I think you got to make it as easy as possible for yourself by setting the board properly. Mm-hmm. So you're doing all the research you're pulling and are you getting a lot of direct dials usually yeah, for people? Yes, it, it yeah, almost okay. exclusively because- That's good. I mean, I'm lucky enough that we use Zoom info. Will that be part of who you decide to call in that block is who you have a direct dial for? Will you leave certain, or do you guys do pretty heavy account-based? Like, how do you approach that? Well, yeah, I mean, it is fairly heavy account-based. I sell to law firms and so I only have a real patch that I can call into, but yeah. yeah I mean, what I try to do is I try to 80-20 the heck out of it because- if I'm trying, like, especially finding contacts, sometimes these law firms that are my, my potential customers can be really hard to figure out who the CFO of a law firm is. And so if Zoom Info doesn't work, if Google doesn't work and LinkedIn doesn't work, I'll actually just abandon that one. And because I could find that CFO if I do another 15 minutes of research by trolling through the internet and searching and searching and searching. But I think that 15 minutes is actually better spent researching six other contacts because now I have six more people to call. So I really try to do this 80-20 rule, which is also kind of similar to the law of diminishing diminishing returns. Your first data source or your first trigger for calling somebody, that's where you're going to find 70-80% of like what you need to make that dial. More work doesn't necessarily equate to more return. We talked about wrestling to start, so I'll use working out as an example. If you think about the improvements to your level of physical fitness from working out zero days a week to starting to work out one day a week, the improvement is greater than going from working out six days a week to working out seven days a week Yeah, because there's a bigger percentage gain there in terms of zero to one is a lot more than six to seven from a percentage difference. I think if my math is right, it might even be infinite. Yeah, I was going to say the zero thing, dude. And I was a PR major in college, so I'm shocked that math worked in my head. So I try to do a lot of that when I'm planning my prospecting also. If something is like getting me stuck, and it's not like, oh, I need to fix my workflow or if I'm in trouble finding something or I keep calling this number and the phone tree is taking me half an hour to get through. I've actually got something there that I can talk about, but abandon, abandon ship. It's okay to quit. It's okay to give up and just like call other people with that. Yeah. If you didn't burn, it's sort of, uh, mm. you know, the, the hard work is important and like grinding it out is important, but dumb work is not important. So if you've called somewhere 22 times and every time they're not available and they hang up, 
I don't know, call somebody else. Yeah. Especially if you have the ability to do it. I mean, I always say don't treat prospects equally. Yes. I like that. I'm stealing that from you. You know, so it's like part of that is, is it a good company? Is it the right job title? Do you have the right contact information? Are they hard to get a hold of? I mean, there's all kinds of stuff. It's like, you're just saying basically to yourself, my understanding is like, Hey, if I got an hour to do this, I'm going to spend that hour on the place where I'm likely to get the most results. So you're shooting for 30. So you set an activity target going into it. You open up all the tabs in advance. I used to do that yeah. uh, back in the day. And then you're not afraid to abandon your clustering certain types of personas together so that you can get into a rhythm. Is there anything that you do to get into the routine of calling? Is there any mental preparation for that physical? If we get really granular, because this is the part that I think is the biggest mystery with this is because if I'm a rep at a company, I usually don't see how other companies do things. Yeah. You know, so I'm always really curious, like if you had to get pretty granular, is there anything like what happens five minutes before your cold call block? Let's see. I shut Outlook. I get a cup of water because I want to actually, it's really interesting. I get nervous in between every call. Right. And so yeah, me too. I actually will like sip water and I end up drinking like three bottles of water during a cold call block. You let yourself like, pee at the end of it though. I do. I do. Yeah. <laughs> okay. That's we're, not, good. we're not that bad. You know, it's not that rough over in this shop, but <laughs> I'm drinking water during it, but I don't know. I think some people make these super convoluted warm-up routine, got to listen to a bunch of music, read a motivational quote, meditate, call my mom, take a nap. Like, <laughs> I mean, look, I, I leave the room, I use the restroom, I get a little bit of water, and then I recognize that the first call I make is not going to be great. I'm probably going to botch it. Yeah. And the second one is still going to be pretty bad, but it'll be at least a little bit better. But you can't let perfect get in the way of done or perfect get in the way of good. And so, mm -hmm. look, if I flub it, I flub it. I mean, I still do this yeah. day before I make the call, I, I write out the opener, which for me is, hey, Jason, this is Nick Sigelski with XYZ Company. I know you didn't expect me to call you this afternoon. Do you mind if I take one minute, tell you why I'm calling? You can let me know if it makes sense for us to speak. And then I shut up and then I have a, a, you know, a value prop or problem prop, whatever you want to call it. But I write those things down and I have it written out for the persona because my brain shuts off when I make calls. So I need to have it written down so I can, I can look there. And then I also, it allows me to better focus on the delivery and the cadence and mm -hmm. the tone and my listening as opposed to what are the specific words that are going to come out of my mouth. And I hear people say, oh, never use a script. You're going to sound like a robot. Well, have you ever gone to a movie and watched like an actor? Those people are working off a script, yeah. but they have the lines ingrained in their brain. So they're focused on the delivery and making it sound natural, not like a robot. So well, stand-up comedy is another great example of that. These people have told these jokes hundreds of times, and it sounds like the first time every time they tell the joke. It sounds like they're sharing something exclusive with you, you know? I never realized that. I didn't know that. And now I feel kind of silly because I'm like, duh. I did stand-up comedy for a little while, you know, about a year and a half or so. And Ooh. it's kind of interesting because there's a formula behind it. People have material, you know, Jerry Seinfeld, there's a documentary. It took him a whole year and it takes the average comedian a year to put together an hour special. So to get 60 minutes of content, it takes them a year of trial and error and refining stuff. So it's, it's highly, highly prepared. And they might do a couple of little things in the moment. Hey, hope you're enjoying the interview with Nick. I'll make this one quick. We've talked a lot about habits and how he plans his week and his days and habit stacking and all that stuff. And there's been kind of a theme in this podcast so far. And I really rely on a tool called Wingman to help me incorporate better sales habits. So if you're looking for a way to not have to spend hours 
getting coaching or sitting around watching webinars and listening to podcasts like this one, which I highly recommend you listen to this one because it'll definitely help you with, <laughs> with your prospecting. But if you don't quite have the time to do that and you're looking for something that can help you more real time in the moment, check out Wingman. I think you're really going to dig it. You can do that at blissfulprospecting.com slash try wingman. Let's get back to the interview with Nick. So with your intro though. Yep, yep. So you're using, by this time, if people are listening to this podcast, they're probably pretty aware of what a permission-based opener or upfront contract is. But I think it's important to talk about the psychology of you allow the prospect to have some autonomy at the very beginning of the call. You allow them to have a choice, yep. you know, to opt in. And is there anything that you have found around like that line in particular that you like to use? Is there something that feels good to you about that? Have you tried other stuff that maybe didn't work so well? Like, how did you come to the point that, hey, this is the line that I'm going to use every time I call someone? A couple things that a prospect wants to know when they get called by somebody they don't know and they're not expecting. Mm -hmm. Who is this person? Where are they calling from? Why are they calling me? And how long is this thing going to take? I have a job I have to do. Like, you got to recognize a salesperson. You're a professional interrupter. And so recognize that and respect that fact because what you're doing is not always welcomed until you actually have something that can help them with a problem. And so you answer all but one of those questions up front. Hi, insert name. This is Nick Sigelski with XYZ Company. Name of the person, company. You're a professional. You're not hiding any of that. You're acknowledging, I know you did not expect me to call you. It's the truth. You're telling the truth. Yep. And then you're asking permission. Is it okay if I tell you why I called you? And then you're in control. You can let me know if it makes sense for us to speak. The curiosity piece will allow you to get to the reason that you called. And there's kind of two levels to a cold call. There's having them hear what you say and having them listen to what you need to say. A lot of cold calls, especially for new cold callers, get terminated before the value prop or problem prop is even delivered from the salesperson. And so you end up having a customer saying not interested before you even get to the reason that you called. And so, well, how do you know? Like, how do you know? And sometimes people try to fight back. Well, you don't even know why I'm calling. Like you've already lost at that point. So I think you got to go in and, and the tone's very important here. Like I'm almost like, ah, you know, mom caught me with my hand in the cookie jar, (laughs) man. I, I know you didn't expect me to call you this afternoon. Do you mind if I take one minute? Like I'm almost a little resigned we just had someone on my podcast and he'll even say something like, and look, man, and I don't even want to be making these calls anyway, but I have to. And the customer's love like, that. Oh, about a pattern interrupt because it's the yeah. truth. Like we don't want to be doing this. And I'm like, look, man, I, I know you didn't expect me to call you today. Do you mind if I take one minute? I'll, I'll tell you why I'm calling. And then you can tell me if it makes sense for us to speak at all. Are you tuning in again? I want to get really granular. It might be muscle memory for you at this point, but are you tuning into anything around like, are you paying attention to their tone when they pick up? Are you picking up any cues on what you think that their tone is going to be like, their demeanor, anything like that that you're using, like in the moment that you're thinking about? Yeah, but it's like such a micro level, right? Like if they're a little bit gruff, you might pick up your cadence a little bit talker. And if they're really smart okay. when they pick up, okay, you might try to mirror and match. So that you mirror a little bit. bit. Okay. Yeah, yeah. But it's not happening at a conscious level because if, as soon as you start thinking about, Oh, well, how yeah. is this person? You might have to do it the first couple of times and you're going to royally screw it up. But yeah, I think it is something like another word for it is code switching, right? Like the way that I speak to a CFO of a potential customer is very, very different than how I'll talk to my grandmother or my friend or my girlfriend, yeah. because right? You're trying to match the vocabulary that you use and the cadence and the slang all to the type of person that you're talking to. So yes, that is happening. 
but it's probably more at a micro level than anything. Yeah. So you do the permission-based opener. Person says, yeah, you can get a minute. Structurally, what are you looking at the next part of the call? So first, what you have to do is you have to thank them, I think. And mm. this is another opportunity. Like we talk about the pattern interrupt sometimes as salespeople where you want to break the natural reactance of salesperson calling customer. And so mm. I'll actually respond and say, thank you, Jason. And once I tell you why I called, if you say this isn't relevant to you, look, I'll respect that. Jason, the reason I'm calling you is, and I insert that there, like, so there's kind of like a little bit of, there's not a ton of content or value in there other than like, look, I'm going to respect it. And I'm a person, I'm actually just trying to buy a little more time there, I think, because if you really then just like jump right in to got to tell you why I called, you might start to lose them there also. And so again, yeah. I'm a person, look, I'll tell you. And then if you say no, look, I'm going to respect it. It doesn't mean I'm not handling objections on these calls, but I'm doing it, I think, in a, Look, you're, I'm trying to be polite. I'm trying to be a real business person who's like, look, if you're going to hang up or really push back, I mean, I'm okay. Like, I'm okay with that. My ego is not so attached to this that yeah. this is me. This is my identity. So from there, what I will insert is I don't call it a value proposition because I think a lot of people think value proposition is I have to lead with me and like why we're the leading provider of X. What I try to do is a, what I call it a problem proposition. Maybe that's stolen from somebody, but I think I might've come up sort of with it. I don't know. It doesn't matter. But what I say is I'm trying to point out to a specific and acute pain that I think this person may be dealing with. One of the things that you do a great job, Jason, is you talk about the way you handle objections, which I think you call it isolated, and you're able to, to handle it that way, or negotiating with somebody or, or having a discovery call. You're able to dig into specific areas. And when someone's agreed to have a call with you, if, if going through door A doesn't resonate mm. with them, you can go through door B and you have the value of there's a feedback loop there. You don't really get that in a cold call. So you kind of have to take a guess. You have to take a guess about what your best guess on the pain is going to be. And so if you want to steal the script, it's Jason. Well, the reason I called you is I've spoken with a number of other insert title of the person you're calling here. I've spoken with a number of other CFOs who are, and then you insert a word that implies pain, which is who are stressed, who are frustrated, who are anxious, who are concerned that insert pain here. And it needs to be specific. They're not efficient enough with the way that they're handling X. It's something very specific and granular. And this is the hardest part, I think, is you've got to find something specific enough that it's not just like, you know, making workflow better or saving money, but it can't be so, so, so granular that only a very small percentage of your prospects are going to have that hit. And so you've got to tinker within probably A, B, C, D test it a couple of times to figure out what the best level of granularity to get to. So it's, hey, Jason, well, the reason that I'm calling you is I've spoken with a number of other VPs of sales who have been frustrated that insert pain point here. I'm calling you about something that makes this that easier. So like literally, instead of saying how I'm going to solve it. So example, I call a bunch of law firms that have trouble with some very specific mm. billing processes, specifically related to electronic billing. And so I'll say, Hey, Jason, I'm talking to a number of other CFOs who've been struggling with insert pain point. I'm calling you about something that makes this easier. And I'm wondering if you might be open to learning more when I'm not cold calling you out of the blue. That's it. I didn't say anything about my company or what we do or even how we help because I don't really care yeah. about that Love until... Well, they don't care either. <laughs> yeah, I mean, exactly. I need to get to the point of them saying, yes, we do have that problem or acknowledging that they want to learn more about how we solve it. Because if they're not experiencing that pain and that pain doesn't exist in the way that I described it, what's the point in telling them how I solved it? 
Yeah. I mean, everyone uses the doctor analogy in sales and I kind of hate it, but like, why would I tell you about how to fix a broken arm if you don't have a broken arm? Yeah. Or you don't think your arm is broken. You're not listening anymore. Mm -hmm. You might hear what I'm saying, but you don't care. You're not listening. So I think you have to get the person to acknowledge that they are feeling that pain or going through that struggle and also accept that they want to get help with that thing. That's when their ears will open and say, well, how or wait? Yeah, we are dealing with that. And so I call it a problem prop. That's all that I'm doing. And if that person says, no, we're not dealing with that and hangs up. Okay, well, I mean, I sell an ERP system. There's probably 8,000 things that we can solve for. So what I'm going to do again is I go to my 80-20 list where it's like, okay, the most common value prop or problem prop didn't resonate with them. In a month, I'm going to call them about a different problem prop and maybe it will resonate with them then. Maybe that's something that they're dealing with. But I stack rank them. So I'm kind of just rambling and giving away all my horrible cold calling secrets because I still get hung up on a lot. No, this is great. I mean, I love that you're talking about it as a problem prop because I think about the value prop in the traditional sense is totally dead. You know, especially during COVID, it's like, dude, no one gives a shit about your company and how many awards you've won and how great you are. But you say spoken with. So it's you're doing what my friend Rajiv Nathan calls displacing the problem. Mm. So you're kind of displacing the problem across other people like them. So if I'm a personal trainer, I always use this analogy and I want to work with a client and they're a little overweight. I can't just go up to you, Nick, and you're not overweight. Obviously you look like you're pretty fit, but if I go up to you and I'm like, uh, Hey, dude, you look like you could use a personal trainer. <laughs> you know, you're having a problem keeping the pound. You're going to be like, fuck you, dude. You know, the versus, Hey, I notice you come into the gym a lot. And you know, one thing I see with a lot of people that are coming to the gym consistently is they want to know how to be just as consistent at home, you know, with what they're eating. Yeah. I'm curious, like, how do you approach your diet plan? You know, like that's a little bit different. Yeah than telling a person they have a problem. And then you're also, I think this is really important actually. And something I took away is you're talking about an emotion that they feel frustration, right? It's not this super logical. I didn't hear any percentages in there. I think that's crap, man. Anybody who's throwing like, you don't, your brain doesn't pick up on it. Your emotional brain doesn't pick up on it. People buy because they are feeling pain. They are experiencing pain. That's directly attached yep. to your emotion right there. I like what you're doing too there because you're protecting the person's ego and you're allowing them to maintain their status. That's something that's very important yeah. in terms of your relation with the prospect because the second mm-hmm. you come in as, I'm cold calling you, you stink, and I've got a way to make you stink <laughs> less. Well, yeah, I mean, the personal trainer analogy is great because I would be offended instantly. And- you allow them to maintain their status. Hey, look, I'm talking to other people that are struggling with this. I don't even know if you're dealing with this at all, but I'm wondering if you'd be open to learning more when I'm, when I'm not cold calling you out of the blue. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh. Dude, that approach is like, when you look at just really basic psychology around shame. Yeah. If, you're, if your goal is to try to get someone to admit that they're not good at something, like, dude, that takes so much, like to admit that. And then to a stranger. Yep. And then it's related to how you make a living. Yeah. I mean, there's just so many layers to that. So I love that. It's just like really easy that make that easier. That's such a perfect way to end that. So what do you do if the person, if you totally miss the mark on the problem? They're like, no, actually we're good, man. Good question. It kind of depends on the tone in which they reply. Cause sometimes you get a, we're good. And then you get a dial tone, which is probably yeah. more often than not. Because usually what happens is if you've sort of built some rapport in that you did the pattern interrupt, look, you know, you tell me why. Mm -hmm. And then what you can do is, you know, you know, we actually have that handled. We have X, Y, and Z. Hey, I appreciate you sharing that. That's really interesting. And I'm a little bit surprised because 
usually when I speak with folks who are doing X, they tell me, you know, they do this, they do this really, really well. But one of the areas that they might be struggling with is why. And so I think you kind of have to pivot. I still struggle when I don't hit the mark initially. Yeah. That's the only fallacy with the really problem-centric approach that I see is it depends on what you're selling too. It sounds like what you're selling fixes a very big pain point that people know. Sure. Like there's an acknowledgement because I feel like there's different kinds of pain that people have or problems. I kind of use those interchangeably. Yep. yep. There's like the problems that people know that they have that they talk about publicly. There's the problems they know they have that they are to only talk about in private. And then there's problems they don't know that they have. Well, you're making me think, because you know what I mean? Actually, you could pivot to from there. Like if you start with a very problem-centered, I mean, I sell a legal ERP system, right? It's a cloud-based yeah. ERP system specifically for law firms. And if initial problem doesn't hit with them, hey, Jason, I appreciate you sharing that. Just so you know, I'm calling you about a cloud legal ERP system for law firms, not assuming you're looking to learn more, but I'm wondering if you ever want to talk, happy to talk. Like you could literally just say that. And then at least they know who you are, why you called problem didn't hit. Oh, I didn't realize you were calling me about that. I guess you just made me a better cold caller. Where do I send my check? (laughs) I always think about that because, you know, a lot of the advice you see out there, I mean, do you consume all the advice you interview folks like me? I can give you really good examples because I cold call to salespeople, dude. You know what I mean? Like salespeople, it's a very clear problem. Like everyone knows that they should do more prospecting. Everyone hates doing it for the most part. And most people suck at it. Yeah. So it's like, a, it's a super easy thing to sell because people are very educated about it. And there's usually really big glaring problems that people have. And the reality of the situation is like every company I work with, it's rarely that glaring where they don't need to be educated at some point. So I was just curious. So when you think about objections on a call, like what are some of the stuff like in terms of like the approach first, before we get into like the how-to part of it, what do you think about an objection? Like, how do you look at an objection? What does that mean to you? In any stage of the sales process, my perspective on it is I just want to get to the truth. Mm -hmm. I'm okay if their objection is legitimate and it's a reason that we cannot proceed to do business together. You have to remove your ego from it and... I hear you, you know, you have to believe in the thing that you're selling and truly believe it's going Mm -hmm. to help. One area that I see folks struggle with is they become attached and associated their, associate their identity with their company and the way that they help people. And they become emotionally invested in deals, particularly when their pipeline is not big enough. And so I have two focuses uh, as a salesperson. I want to prospect like maniac so that I have a good pipeline. And then the deals that I have in pipeline, I don't fight to win them. I want to win them and I will work very, very hard to win a winnable deal, but I'm not trying to fight or force something to happen. That's not the case. And so what that's done, I mean, you wanted the mentality is when I get an objection or a concern or a question, my entire perspective is I want to deeply understand that and get to the heart and the truth of what's actually happening in their world, Mm -hmm. because that's really the only thing that matters. And when you get an objection, I actually intentionally want to draw objections out. Hey, yeah. you know, we've gotten pretty deep in this thing. And one thing that other law firms, in my case, other, other companies have been concerned about is X. And you can actually bring that up. I'm not saying you throw a landmine on your own deal. But if you have a hunch that like something's going to be a concern or you can sort of sense something is going awry there, I want to draw that objection out. I don't want to hide from it because one of two things happens when you get presented by it with an objection. Either the objection is legitimate, it's a legitimate reason why you should not be doing business together, 
Well, now you understand that and you can both move on and you both get more time back in your day. Use that time to call other folks. If it is not legitimate, you need to deeply understand it so that you can address why it's an unfounded objection. So at my last company, I was working with a potential customer in Canada and they had very specific data requirements. They were based in Vancouver that my company could not meet. And I wasted probably six meetings working with this customer, going through demos, going through calls. Oh man! And then we realized, oh, this thing that we could have been taken care of right in the beginning would have saved us both a lot of time. And so it was, I put it in my learnings document. Okay. This is something that I now know. And so I think if you go into objections, if you want to call it that, I don't even really like the word objections because it has this like adversarial confrontational connotation about it. Yep. I mean, you're just trying to understand the other person and the world that they're coming from and the way that they perceive this thing. And so, look, I just want to understand you. And so you can ask questions. And I think it has to be very like, hands up. I'm okay. Like, I'm not here to force this thing down your throat. And I mean, I think every call I ever have with the customer, I'm like, look, you know, it's sort of the Sandler upfront contract thing where it's like, look, if at any point you don't think this thing is a good fit, like, please tell me. But I mean, I also throw there, look, you're not going to hurt my feelings. I, I really want to make sure, like, I'm not here to force something on you. I'm not just an information giver. Don't get me wrong. I'm a salesperson, but I want to hear about your concerns because my job is to help you make sure you have the right information to make the best decision for your company. And so throw objections at me. I want them because that actually accelerates the sale and it actually yeah. pattern interrupt, right? You're very different than other salespeople if you're not turning it into this adversarial. Well, let me handle your objection. doesn't work. Yeah. doesn't work. I love that. One of the big things I'm taking away from a conversation with you is that everyone should have a you know, a learnings document, right? Where they pick up on this stuff. Cause how many people repeat the same mistakes over and over? It's crazy. Yeah. So how do you think about objections when it's more of like a shallow objection in a cold call? You have this approach of curiosity. It sounds like where you're like, Hey, I want to help give this person like what they need and understand like where they're coming from. How does that translate into when someone gives you like that shrug off, like not right now, call me later. Now's not a good time. Not interested. How do you think about those types of it's hard to even call those objections. You know, yeah. It's just more of like a shrug off. It's reactance is what it is, yeah. right? It's despite the fact that they said, yeah, go ahead, tell me why you called. It, it's still an emotional reaction to stranger called me. I'm not supposed to talk to strangers because my mother told me that since I was a two-year-old boy, I want <laughs> to get out of this interaction. And so step one is like, you have to remove your emotional attachment and ego from it because the listeners are going to hear a couple ways you can handle those things. Seven times out of 10, it's still not going to work. You're going to get hung up on. Your email goes to spam. Like, it's okay. Like, failure is part of the job. Getting punched in the face is part of the job. So be okay with that. But I think some of this goes to, like, the curiosity. And, like, you have to feel comfortable with yourself and and remove your ego. And so when you get told, yeah, well, send me an email. Or, you know, know, we're good. We've got that taken care of. It's okay to ask. My buddy Armand calls it a disarmingly blunt question. Or it's like... Jason, do you mind if I ask you kind of an awkward question? First of all, they're like, what? Who is this guy? (laughs) You know, usually when someone tells me that they're good, like usually they just don't want to talk to me because I'm a salesperson. (laughs) I'm off base with that. Well, yeah, I don't even know why you called me. Oh, okay. Yeah. Would you be opposed to me telling you why I called? And then you can tell me if we should even talk at all. Or you mean, you can hang up on me right now. Like it won't hurt my feelings. Yeah. It's something I picked up from Josh Braun a lot recently. It's like, you got to remove your ego completely from this thing. Mm -hmm. And that's easier to do when you have a bigger pipeline than not, which again, goes back all the way to the beginning. Discipline, 
You got to be disciplined with your cold calls, disciplined with your prospecting. Yep. When it comes time to do the work, you got to do the work. If I have a deal that's winnable, I'm going to bust my butt to win that deal. Someone tells me they're good on a cold call. Like, I don't, I don't want to fight them, man. Yeah. It's like, I have a certain amount of emotional energy and that doesn't mean I can't be strategic and tactical and use the right psychology, mm -hmm. but I don't know. I don't want to spend my day fighting people. They don't want to talk. Fine. I'll call them in a week. I'll call them in a month. Maybe it's a better day then. Or maybe I'll call six other prospects instead of getting all worked up and getting hung up on the same person six times in a row. Yeah. You know, when you got a big enough ICP, you can kind of do that. Yeah. I mean, that's such a good point to just move on. I did a sales call earlier today where I'm like, why did I schedule the second call yeah. from this. I should have disqualified it on the first call because I wasn't super excited about doing that call. And then he ended up not wanting to move forward, which I was like, I didn't even really push for it. Yeah. You know, my energy was probably off and it was like 45 minutes out of my day and his day that he'll never get back. You know what I mean? And I'm like, Fuck, I wish I didn't do that. And it's like, you can run into that a lot with like, dude, if someone's a total asshole to you on the phone, it's like, just think about, would you want to even do a sales call with that person? And then Imagine what the proposal process is going to look like with someone like that. You know, it's like, there's a certain amount of it that I think it's abundance. Like I dating, yeah, I know people hate dating analogies and there's oh, a kind I of overuse and I'm not going to make it in a oh. sexist way, but it's like, dude, when I was dating between my ex and my now wife, Sarah, you know, what would made that first date, like what took all the pressure off of it is if I was already going to have another first date with someone else the next night or, or a week after or whenever. And it was like, you don't need so much. And there's so much subconsciously, I think that's going on there when your pipeline is just like, you got nothing in there where you just reek of desperation. You know, it's like they say on super troopers, desperation's a stinky clone, Yeah, <laughs> you know, stinks. and creating some abundance in your pipeline, like really takes care of a lot of like the tonality issues and the objection handling and like all of that stuff. You talk about the psychology and, you know, the mental health and, you know, you talk about the impact therapy can have on a salesperson and it's really true. You're just okay with it. And, and yeah, the thing, the discipline that you do gets you to that place where I'm in a place right now, pipeline wise, where I'm not in that place if I've got to cling on to deals anymore. Yeah. And I never want to leave this place because it's very, very I feel good about my sales career and pipeline and where I are and, and you know my even where I am with the company you know we're in a really tough economic time right now but I feel very good about where I am because of the discipline that I've done and that's been a lot of work a price that I've paid every single day to like kind of wake up early and grind out the work and eat the frog but it puts you in a really good spot. Yeah. Dude, this is awesome man. Before we take off yep. two questions. One is if someone's listening to this and it's like, Hey, this is really good. How does someone like, what is one habit that you recommend people make a regular part of their day or their week that will have kind of that compound, that domino effect on a lot of the other stuff that you're talking about today? It's the journaling. It's a self-reflection because it takes yeah. you out of the problem for just five minutes at the end of the night, like out of the yep. daily sort of grind, you come up above and you can kind of look and yeah, listening to this might be great. Maybe you took one or two things away. Maybe you took 40 things away, but you're never going to implement all of those things unless you actually self-reflect. And so I think it's important that you do that on a daily consistent basis, because if you implement one efficiency a day, the compounding impact of that is very, very powerful, right? If you learn one new sales play that you can run a day, heck, even a week, yeah, the compounding impact of that is very powerful. What's your other question? Dude, where can people go to connect with you, man? And please tell everyone about your podcast. It's on my top like two list of, Ooh. I only listen to two sales podcasts and your yours is one of them. 
not that that means anything. It's just a really good, but a lot of other people approve of your podcast too. So <laughs> no, but tell people about where they can connect with you, man, and your podcast and what you guys are doing. Well, the podcast helps when you have guests that are much, much smarter and better looking than you. <laughs> you know, we had Jason on, so there's, there you go. <laughs> connect, everybody says just connect with me on LinkedIn, but I'll even spell my name for those in the car. It's N-I-C-K, Nick is the first name. Last name is C-E-G-E-L-S-K-I. Connect with me and then send me a message with anything but Nick. I thought your profile was quite interesting and we have some mutual connections. It would be great to network and learn more about your business. I will decline those ones. Yeah. Everyone else, I love talking to folks on LinkedIn because I learn from a lot of very interesting, different perspectives. Mm-hmm. Podcast, I'll give you the 30 seconds on it. It's called 30 Minutes to President's Club. The idea is there's a lot of sales podcasts out there. This is not one of them, actually, that are very... They're academic and they focus on things like theory or they talk about uh, and nothing against this one because we did talk about some mindset, but they talk about things like mindset or they'll say things like you got to sell value or sell the vision or you know, sit on the same side of the table as the customer and the idea that you get on their side. And I found as a newer salesperson when I was more junior in my career that I really struggled with advice like that because when you're a 22-year-old kid, like what does it actually mean? And so the idea behind the show is it's only yep. tactical actionable plays and takeaways that folks can put into practice that day. Things you could say to a customer, things you could write in an email, things you could do on a demo. And there's a time and place for motivation and mindset, but it's not the show. So 30 minutes of president's club. Love it. If you folks listened and, uh, this is a lot of fun, Jason. You're one of the smartest dudes I've met because of, actually because of the show. I, I kind of started it selfishly because I wanted to learn from really smart people. Dude, every time we talk, I'm like, I mean, seriously, like the cold call thing you told me about, you know, problem versus sort of more generic. God damn, I got to start doing that. So you're the man. I really appreciate this. No, I appreciate the kind of words, dude. And make sure to check the show notes. I'll link up to the podcast. It's a very, very good podcast. Tons of other great guests that have also been on this podcast. So cool, man. Appreciate you coming on, dude. Hey, thanks a lot. It's a lot of fun, Jason. Hey, hope you enjoyed the interview with Nick. That was a really fun one. I had a fun time jamming with him. And my biggest takeaway was creating a learnings document. I thought that was kind of cool. You know, having a document, piece of paper, could be a Google Doc, whatever it might be, and just writing down all the things that you learned so you don't have to relearn them every time you go through it. So that was my biggest takeaway. And one of the things that I have been using to not have to relearn how to do things as much, especially when I'm doing sales calls, is using a tool called Wingman. And I don't know if you've ever had those moments where you hit the panic button in a sales call because a prospect asks you a question or puts you on the spot and you don't know how to answer it. I don't know if that's ever happened to you. It happens to me. I've been selling for 12 years. And when that happens, it's really important to have some talking points ready and available so there isn't any weird pauses or you stumbling over your words or anything like that that would make the prospect lose confidence in you. And a tool that I use to help me with that is called Wingman. You can check it out at blissfulprospecting.com slash try wingman. And I really appreciate you spending time with me today. And we'll see you next time.